0: when you haven't been introduced to the joys and treasures of silence earlier in your life, you actually start to see it as the enemy, because actually it is the enemy to your established identity. It's going to undo and break down the perimeter and edge that you
1: set up for yourself. Welcome to The One You Feed, It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast,
1: Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is David White, a poet and author who also leads the Many Rivers organization and INVITAS, the Institute for Conversational Leadership, which he founded in 2014. David is the author of many poetry collection books and prose books, including the one primarily discussed here with Eric, Still Possible. Hi, David.
3: Welcome to the show. Very good to be with you, Eric. I am really excited to have you on. Your poetry has been inspiring to me. Actually, your poetry and your prose for a long time. So I'm really excited about this. We'll start with a poem from your new book. But before we do that, let's start like we always do with a parable. There's a grandparent who's talking with their grandchild. And they say, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandchild stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at their grandparents and says, Well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, The one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means
0: to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, I think uh, the parable is just the beginning of an interesting conversation. You start off by identifying, you know, one bad wolf, one good wolf. But actually, it's more a hierarchy of function. You know, the bad wolf is really the strategic mind when it's left to shape your identity, and greed and uh, fear. And uh, it's the naming mind bereft of the faculty of belonging, which is really the other wolf. So uh, I'd say the bad wolf is meant actually to be a good servant, to the first wolf's desires and then there isn't a bad wolf and a good wolf you get a better arrangement of things that's my experience of it so the ability to drop down to a foundational self that is paying attention in a way of direct perception uh, rather than intermediate naming and we often name things in order to keep them at a distance to keep them in the abstract to diminish them to have power over them, but there are useful times to name things when you're in conversation with other people. And and so you learn discernment about that naming. So a useful way to start, but in the end, I don't think the parable is accurate for the dynamic, but a very good place to... Uh, start just in the way that people perceive different parts of themselves as uh, good and bad. But if we have a different relationship with them, then we find that the bad part is just uh, misaligned. Yeah, there's a lot of instances in your
3: work where, you know, something is necessary skill for one part of our journey, and then becomes an unnecessary skill. At another part of our journey, you know, it comes to mind hearing you talk about ambition, right? Saying like, well, you know, for the youth, it's pretty important. It's good, but ultimately it becomes an obstacle for someone who's fully mature. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves here. Why don't we start with a poem
0: from the new book? From Still Possible. Yeah, yeah. This book came out of the heart of the pandemic, and uh, of course, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of lockdown, but everyone was going to be writing the great next American novel, or the great (laughs) next Irish or British novel, or learning Italian, or becoming a great Parisian baker, and some of us did, but I had my traveling life stopped, and I was suddenly at home, and being home was like a radical travel in itself, I mean over extended times, so I said, no, David, don't give yourself any goals or ambitions apart from my creating a community online, which took up most of my time. So I went into the pandemic just wanting to give myself a real rest, actually, from that kind of endeavor and goal-oriented seeking. But in the middle of it, I was watching a BBC documentary called Brotherhood, The Secret Life of Monks which concentrated on the small community of Carthusian monks in the north of England, and an elderly group of men who were actually starting a brewery in order to uh, attract a younger group of men (laughs) into the monastery. (laughs) Ostensibly, this was was what the um, documentary was about, but really, it was really about the inner life of this remarkable body of monks who had been together for decades, actually. And the documentary began focusing on a man who was obviously very ill in bed and who was having actually difficulty speaking. And it took a while to entrain into what he was saying and how he was saying it. And then after a while, you realized he wasn't uh, only on his sickbed. He was actually on his deathbed. And he was talking about his life at the monastery and uh, all the years he'd been there and coming in as a young monk and the illusions he had. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Eric, he says, you know, I gave up praying years ago. And the immediate catch in your heart listening was, oh, he lost his faith. You know, he just found a comfortable place to be where he'd be looked after, you know, and he just got with the program and lived his life. But there was a beat, you know, of a silence for a little while. And he said, I gave up praying years ago because my whole life became a prayer. I was living and breathing the atmosphere of prayer. And it was such a powerful statement. And then the very next scene was the man in his coffin, actually, after he died, surrounded by his fellow monks, uh, reading the offices, you know, in the chapel around him. And I was so struck and so poignantly affected by both his testament, you know, on on his deathbed, and also the intimate invitation that he and his fellow monks had made to accompany him in his death. So I wrote this piece for him, and it's called Your Prayer. Your prayer only began with words. Each one, each one just a hand on the door to silence. Each one just you putting your full weight against everything you thought you could never deserve even in your gathered chanted strength in the chapel what you said in the end was just a shoulder against the grain of wood trying to keep the entrance open until that door which had been no door at all gave way to necessary grief which is really just you understanding everything you had been missing all along, which is really just you feeling that raw vulnerability you needed to make a proper invitation, which is really just you feeling the full depth of your love at last. The heartbroken heart coming to heartfelt rest. The opening inside you filled to the gleaming brim and casting its generous beam. The part of you you thought was foolish, the wisest voice of all. The part of you you thought was foolish, the wisest
3: voice of all. Such a beautiful poem. There's an image that runs through multiple poems in your new book about this idea of a door. You sort of use it. It's sort of a shoulder against a door. Does that have a special meaning to you?
0: It just shows up, I noticed, multiple times. Yes, it's, you know, we can have the door as a barrier and a door that we're afraid to approach, you know, and a door that we feel is locked. But a door is also, uh, by its own definition, an opening. And so the idea of your weight against the door, whether it's a shoulder against the grain of wood, or you putting your full weight against everything you thought you never deserved. It's this uh, experience of real contact with what seems like a barrier, but usually when you put your full weight against it, it swings open. It's very powerful. And we've started with a kind of fairy tale parable. And one of the powerful images in uh, Northern European fairy tales is when the children are taken out at the behest of the false mother usually by the hunter and he's supposed to kill them there in the woods but he can't do it actually he can't bring himself to do it so he just leaves them in the dark and says they and says they'll they'll have to fend for themselves they probably won't make it so that will do it you know and the child the boy or the girl eventually uh, starts crying and in their grief they fall against a rock or a tree and it's only when the rock or the tree takes their full weight that it says to them, it actually speaks back to them. It says, how can I help you, my child, more or less? Yeah. Mm. And it's just as if it takes the full weight of your grief and your exile for the world to speak back to you. So sometimes the door's already open, actually, and you're just afraid of leaning against it, and you find you actually fall through to the other side. You know. Other times... Your weight, your contact against it actually is a kind of conversation and it starts to change it into something else. And I'm thinking of the door is outside in the world, of course, you know, in many ways, you know, perhaps a difficult conversation with another person. But it's quite often a kind of physical barrier in the body that we feel between our peripheral surface self that's always complaining and misnaming the world and feels pity for itself, and the foundational part of you that feels as if everything in the world is actually quite miraculous and perfect yeah. And the ability to get to that foundational core is not the ability to find some kind of Elysian perfection, you know, where we won't be touched. It's just being able to go to a place where we can have a proper conversation with things that are misaligned in the world and aren't making sense. yeah. It's the barrier between you and what's called in many of our traditions, the essential self. It's the part of you that can hold a proper conversation with the world. And when that part of you holds a proper conversation, which is a kind of direct perception, I mean, in the Zen tradition or uh, the Buddhist tradition, it's called Buddha nature, that place where what you think is you and what you think is not you disappears and becomes just the meeting itself, the conversation itself. And we have this in extreme moments of of beautiful forgetting, you know whether it's in pleasures of intimacy with one other person you know, or whether it's when you're ravished by an ocean view you know or you're on the beach with the wind in your hair and your feet in the water, and you just get out of yourself and into yourself at the same time, so that's the doorway it's what you think is a barrier or an opening, both <laughs> yeah to a place you actually want to go or a way you actually want to be yeah the classic zen phrase of the gateless gate you know yes exactly that door which is no door at all yeah gave way to necessary grief yeah there is a kind of perception an austere perception of zen whereby you know when you're enlightened you're not going to be touched by the heartbreak and difficulty of life and you're not going to be awkward and make mistakes and But no, I mean, if you look at all the way enlightenment is actually described, it's really just saying enlightenment is when you're in a real conversation, when you're in a real meeting with something other than yourself. Uh, It doesn't mean to say you're protected, doesn't mean to say you're insulated, you know, you're at this arrived place of perfection. No, you're just in a real conversation and that's what makes all the difference.
3: That's a beautiful answer. And actually, you answered a question I was going to ask before I even asked it, which was, you know, looking at a couple views of spirituality, there's enlightenment, right? And another is a mature view of spirituality is the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, which I think your work speaks to so well. And I love the way you just sort of brought them together, because I was going to ask you where the crossover point is for you. And I think you just answered, which is real conversation.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's why there's a very powerful kind of companionship between the apprenticeship to poetry and deep states of intentionality in Zen or, or any contemplative tradition. I mean, you could say that prose is really about something. Poetry is the thing itself, or it should be good poetry, at least. Yeah. And you could say theology is about something, but the practice of Zen is about direct seeing. The central practice, even in the Christian tradition, is about this direct perception, this cloud of unknowing. There's a spiritual teacher by the name
3: of Adi Ashanti, whose work has meant a lot to me. And he said once, and I just thought this was so good, he said, you know, awakening is not freedom from feeling things, it's freedom to feel things. And I thought that was a beautiful way of thinking about it. Like we are in a space that's big enough, strong enough, solid enough that we can encounter life in all of its beauty and terror.
0: Yes, that's lovely. That's an echo of what the French philosopher Camus said. He said, live to the point of tears. Hmm which is not an invitation to model in sentimentality. You know, it's to say to feel everything fully so it can actually flower and transform into something else. You know, It's when we don't feel things fully, as Adyashanti was intimating, that things get stuck. And I do think depression is a form of stuckness. It's just sorrow, which is immobilized in a way. Not that we're not supposed to feel sorrow, but it's supposed to just have its season and then be allowed to move on. Depression, I think, is where you get that kind of gray immobility around it. Yeah. And it's not to say that there isn't a clinical form of depression which needs medical help in order to help you shift, You know, but I think it's the same dynamic. It's this drawing of the circle around us in a kind of uh, fortified way I mean, one of the dynamics of depression is its self-reinforcing nature. Mm. You start not looking out the window. You start not going out the door. You start not believing, not thinking there's anywhere to go or anything to do or anyone to be with. I think direct perception always leads one to this experience of the invitational nature of reality. When you start paying deep, scintillating attention in silence you realize everything is inviting you to its door. Strangely enough, you find that you're a part of everything too, and you, whether you want to or not, are inviting everyone to your door. So you could say that a real conversation is a mutual invitation, mm. and you could say that enlightenment is a mutual acceptance of the invitation, <laughs> <as> the, <laughs> of, being, uh, of being hospitable. Um, it's a great Beautiful and disturbing question to ask yourself is, how invitational am I actually? If you're in a relationship, how invitational am I to my partner, to my wife, my husband, my partner, whatever name I give them? How invitational am I to my children? What invitation do they think I'm making to them? How invitational am I to my friends? How invitational am I just... Actually, when I walk into a room, it's interesting to think that unconsciously human beings are constantly trying to figure out what the invitation is in almost every situation. (laughs) Sometimes the invitation is to go away (laughs) and we have to be alert to that, Uh, which is why we're so wary much of the time. But quite often, uh, there's the really powerful invitation that we're equally afraid of, which is to be more of yourself and to give your gift from that hidden self so the doorway is the door between what is spoken and what is not spoken what has not been spoken yet between the world in which we live and the hidden place from which we will give our gift into that world
3: This show is sponsored by Better Help. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. This can be really challenging to figure out, and when we try to deal with them on our own, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I recently had a few things I needed to talk about, and I signed up for BetterHelp again. And I choose it because it's convenient, it's flexible, and it works well with my schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com. Dot com slash feed today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help. H E L P.com slash feed. I want to move a little bit into one of your works that is meant the most to me, which is the three marriages. And you basically say we all have you know, three marriages, to work, to another person, and to ourselves. Yeah. And my favorite line in that book is you're talking about how we meet ourselves. And you say, if we were really aware of the particular brick walls and unending difficulties that lay ahead of us and finding just a little of that true self, we might lock ourselves up in a padded room with a towering pile of hello magazines and
0: never <laughs> have a <laughs> profound thought again. <laughs> I always do think, Eric, that um, (laughs) everyone has the right to say, I don't want to have the conversation. Thank you very much. I don't want to respond to the invitation because life is full of so much loss, difficulty and heartbreak that almost all of us have been in despair or bereft at one time or another. And we can't quite believe that we have to have our heart broken so many times, yeah. never mind just once. And we can't quite believe that there's no sincere path you can take without having your heart broken. And so everyone goes through the period in their life where they say, no, thank you. I'm just going to stay in this in this insulation i'm going to narrow down the bandwidth of my experience just as if you've got a piano but you only play the middle keys of it you know you don't want to feel extreme joy you don't want to feel extreme sorrow and so you do get this effect the human beings have of inhabiting this bland middle where actually you're you're afraid to break out along the edges. So only the bland middle of life can find you. You know, it takes one to recognize one in a way, to expand the chordal structure of our existence, you know, to have you know a part of the day which is music, whether you can play or not, but listening to it or witnessing it, You know, to have a part of the day which is you attempting to say something you haven't ever said before in your life, you know, to ask a beautiful question, to do something physical, that uh, pushes your edges. Uh, You know, I run my own walking and poetry tours uh, in different parts of the world. And we have good companionship, good food. We have poetry in the morning and the conversations that come out of it. So you get a kind of imaginative intellectual stimulation. Then you have more good food at lunch. And then you go for a long, long walk out in beautiful places with the conversations you hold in those places. You get wet, you get cold, you get hot and then you arrive and you have a wonderful dinner and wine or Guinness, depending what country you're in, and then you rinse and repeat, you know, for six days in a row, and people's chordal structure starts to open up, you know, you're getting all the different parts of yourself addressed, and you do feel these deep chords being played inside you how would you shape a life like that for yourself? And that's always my question at the end of those. Uh, I used to sit with a Zen teacher uh, and when we uh, completed a session, you would know sessions, you know, the intensive week long <laughs> yep. sitting. He'd always say session starts tomorrow when you leave, you know, <laughs> Yep, yep. And, uh, after uh, seven days of fierce kind of physical and uh, emotional agony. And I often say to that themselves, you know, if you've had a marvellous time in the west of Ireland, how do you create that? You know, get out in the elements every day, spend time with friends, uh, have some music in your life, read a poem. And as you probably know, you're obviously a lover of poetry, uh, quoting my own back to me, Eric. uh, (laughs) um, You only need one line of poetry a day, actually. You can travel a thousand miles in a single line of poetry, so...
3: Is that how you encourage people to engage more deeply with poetry, is to engage with
0: less of it, but more deeply with each piece of it? Well, I would, you know, if people were asking, how do I bring poetry into my life? Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, I work with them when I'm live by bringing a lot of it into their lives. You know, But that's my art form is mm-hmm. my job is to get poetry to as many people as possible because it's such a lifesaver. Yeah. So that's why I memorize it. Um, That's why I build narratives around the stories. That's why I delight in all the details and also the biographical details of the poet, the man or woman who wrote them. And when you start to bring it all alive with storytelling, people find relevant kind of qualities that are being spoken to the poetry. I often say poetry is the art of uh, saying things you didn't know you knew, you know. It's language against which you have no defences. You write poetry so other people have no defences against it when they're reading it. But for that to happen, you first of all have to write a line against which you have no defences. It kind of undoes you, unbuttons you, opens you up, and uh, you find yourself saying things you didn't know you knew. And quite often things you didn't want to know, thank you very much, because (laughs) you were quite happy in your old settled identity behind the place where you'd drawn the line, where you'd close the door and locked it from the inside. Is there a poem
3: you would like to read or recite now that feels appropriate to where we are in the conversation? I mean, I've got my favorites, but I thought I'd open it to you. Well, I'll
0: start with the little one and then you could make a suggestion. But Okay. This is um, the first poem in Still Possible. Um, I didn't write it at the beginning, but it's an invitation to the journey that the book involves you in. And this is called For the Road to Santiago. And most people know now that uh, Santiago is uh, the end of the Pilgrim Trail that goes across northern Spain for 500 miles, Camino de Santiago de Compostela, uh, which has become this beautiful ecumenical trek people of all persuasions and no persuasions at all are doing it but it used to be just a catholic pilgrimage so it's lovely the way it's opened out in the postmodern world like many things have this is about setting off on the journey to santiago and what you need to take with you but it's of course it's for any goal you have set yourself that's precious to you in your life for the road to santiago for the road to santiago don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind Bring what you have. You were always going that way anyway. You were always going that way all along. Hmm. I love that. Bring what you have. Bring what you have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a disturbing line at the beginning uh, when I wrote for the road to Santiago don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. I mean, my whole art form is about making new declarations. <laughs> And uh, a lot of my poetry is in declarative sentences, yeah. And a lot of my prose, uh, my essays, are declarative sentences, very unfashionable, you know, in the writing world. So this was quite a both amusing and disturbing line. And I said, what do you mean? I said to myself, what do I mean? What do you mean by that? You know, and then when I say you, I'm talking about this deep stranger inside you that it's you, but you always meet yourself, the deepest self, as a, as a stranger, first of all, who's speaking to you. Don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. Bring what you have. You are always going that way anyway. You're always going that way all along. First, so this invitation to have faith in the way you made and the way you hold the conversation of life. There's no one else can walk the Camino in the way you can. And sometimes you literally have to crawl it on your hands and knees metaphorically sometimes in your life the only way to go through the door is on your hands and knees or to fall flat through it where are you in your life don't try to be anything other than you are if you're just hanging on then just hang on that's your conversation at the moment you're going to get there by just hanging on to begin with not by being some kind of spiritual athlete so have faith in the way you're just hanging on actually and uh, learn to talk about it, you know, and uh, ask for help in your hanging on visible and invisible help. There's a lovely story in the ancient Pali texts, which are the earliest descriptions we have of Buddha's talks and his community that he gathered around him. You know? And there's a lovely story about one fellow who was a bit of a rogue, you know, he really loved what Buddha had to say, but after the talk was over, he'd be off, you know, having a drink and hanging out with the wrong kind of crowd and getting into wonderful trouble. But he would turn up faithfully every day to the sangha, you know, and hear the talk. But at the end of one of Buddha's talks, he got the courage to stand up and say, yeah, you know, Buddha, you're great. You're wonderful. You never put a foot wrong. You're totally authentic. You're virtuous, you know. But I try to take a, a step and I fall down. He said, do you have any advice for me? And Buddha looked at him and said, uh, yes, just fall in the right direction. Hmm. So it's really lovely. You know, it's an invitation. If you're going to come home drunk, you know, just make sure you fall into the kitchen, not out.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> fall through the door onto the kitchen floor. Don't fall out into the cold and the snow. Yeah, uh, It's very compassionate it's beautiful. It's really an invitation. Wherever you are, your moment of transfiguration is just you taking a step towards a larger context and towards the context that is good for you. I wanted to hit on this because I think this is right what we're sort of talking about here. Yes.
3: You say that one of the great necessities of self-knowledge is understanding your own reluctance to be here. All the ways you don't want to have the conversation, all the ways you don't want to be in the marriage, you don't want to be a parent, you don't want to be visible in a leadership position, you don't want to be doing this work. Yes. So yeah. So I think that's absolutely true and i'm curious though where the line is in doing that acknowledging our reluctance in a deep and honest way and what passes for just sort of normal complaining a lot of the time that we hear from people which is they're they're talking about all the things they don't like but it's not transforming
0: what's the difference there in your mind well it's the naming mind that's complaining you know that things aren't conforming to the way you'd like them to be in your abstract notion of perfection. So uh, coming to terms with your own reluctance is just understanding how difficult it is to be alive, really. (laughs) I mean, just even to be alive, never mind be a parent or a partner or a colleague uh, or a member of society or a community uh, with all the responsibilities involved in all those different levels. So you pay attention to your reluctance in a kind of direct way so it can speak to you. Both in a sense that it will give you a sense of humor and there's nothing that will help you in parenting or in a marriage than having a sense of humor. If you have no sense of humor, you don't stand much of a chance (laughs) (laughs) in relationship. You will be humiliated in relationship. You will be humiliated in parenting. In fact, parenting is one long apprenticeship to humiliation. (laughs) I would agree. I would agree. (laughs) And you will be humiliated by the person looking back at you in the mirror. You will say the wrong thing at the wrong time in public, you know. So you've got to be able to understand, you know, why you're reluctant to appear and become visible. Yeah, It's natural. And uh, so you start to address it, you know. You start to be able to speak it out loud, actually, and it transforms it immediately. I mean, there's nothing more endearing than someone on stage who just confronts their nervousness directly. And there's nothing more inauthentic than someone who tries to cover it over with some kind of manufactured charisma, you know, on stage. When you articulate how difficult it is to be here, you actually create both a direct contact with the difficulty itself, which starts to then transform but you also make an invitation to others to join you in that understanding. So if I'm reluctant to be on stage and yet my know that my work involves that kind of visibility, I've got to really pay attention to all the ways I don't want to be there. And then this wonderful dynamic starts to occur, which the Greeks addressed, and they had a specific name for it. It's called Enantiodromia which is the dynamic whereby something that becomes fully and utterly itself immediately starts to change into something other than itself. In other words, it starts to get a seasonality, it stops being stuck. So almost always when you actually feel your one particular form of reluctance fully, it immediately transforms into something else. So you find, for instance, you know, on stage that your reluctance has to do with the way you were perhaps shamed as a child whenever you were visible, either in your school or in your family or in the playground, wherever it was. Yeah, And you start to actually allow that to give you a sense of compassion for others that are shamed in those. And suddenly your reluctance becomes this articulation of something that everyone is feeling, but never can say completely. So our reluctances are always doorways of connection and compassion and invitation to other people eventually. But people will just actually name their reluctance and then turn away from it. Yeah, Or use it as a kind of foundation of cynicism, a way of indulging in the reluctance itself without actually moving it along.
3: This strikes me as similar to when you talk about despair being a natural and normal place to be as long as you've used the word seasonality, right? If you fully inhabit it, it will transform. And that's, I think what you're sort of saying here. If you fully inhabit yes. your reluctance, I know for me, when I start to feel reluctance towards something that is central in my life, yes, it scares the shit out of me, right? Because yes. you're like, well, what if I don't want to be this thing anymore? Yes. Oh my goodness. And so- yeah yeah it's turn away from it turn away from it instead of as you're saying really go deeply
0: into it and go okay
3: this is what's happening
0: yes and what you're articulating there is this fear that you'll find out that you don't want it actually and you've been shaping your whole life around it and so you're afraid to find out and of course this is a very accurate description of what happens when you're in a relationship and you don't have certain conversations because you don't want to find out that you actually don't want to be in it so this is a piece actually that's in uh, still possible and it's called you know when it's time to go and this is where you do find out that actually you're reluctant because you actually have to leave and that's another kind of flowering where going fully into all the ways you don't want to have the conversation tells you. Actually, I wrote this during uh, the pandemic. A good friend of mine was going through the throes of that separation and facing that he wanted to separate. And uh, we had lovely conversations, but we were literally talking every day because he was really going through the emotional ringer. Yeah. And uh, there was a lovely male moment, actually, where he said, I want you to be my coach. I mean, we've been friends for decades. (laughs) And I, th- I said, really? I said, you want to be my coach? I said, okay, I'll ask you the classic coaching question. He said, what's that? I said, what kind of coach do you want me to be? He thought for a moment and he said, I just want you to tell me what to do. <laughs> Very don't, masculine way of... <laughs> don't we all want I said, that sometimes? I said, I said, that doesn't work. I said, I'll tell you and you'll just say no. So <laughs> anyway, I wrote this for him, but it's for all of us in that situation. It's called you know when it's time to go. You know when it's time to go. That involuntary sense of hesitation discovered inside what only looks like your own body, a hesitation like a movement in itself. Your reluctance to hear the call, as much an invitation as if a door had opened in the broad heavens and called you through. Your unwillingness to hear the bird song, another kind of listening and the complete inability to speak, such a clear and articulate understanding of what you want. Even in the midst of thinking you'll never be ready, even when you feel you have never deserved that freedom to go, even under the comforting illusion that you never had a single speck of faith in what you want, you've already packed your silent reluctance away Lifted your ear to the morning bird song, and before anyone can wake, you're out the door, down the road, round the corner, and on your way.
3: I have a really good friend who is in a similar situation to your friend uh, when you wrote that poem, and she immediately was like, I have a favorite poem in that book, and I was like, I know which one it is. You really
0: only need the title,
3: (laughs) (laughs) exactly, exactly. But
0: if it speaks to you, it speaks to you. Yeah,
3: (laughs) it's a really beautiful idea. So I want to go back to this idea of the three marriages for a second. One of the things that you do is you talk about a a dynamic that is common. To each of them. You say, in the pursuit of all three marriages, there is one essential human experience an individual brings to each of them. We hear more and more about it in our modern world, and the word is anxiety. Yes. You say, our to-do lists have become the postmodern equivalent of the priest's rosary, the Lama's sutra, or an old prayer book, uh, which I just think is, is great. Say a little more about anxiety and
0: working with it skillfully. Yes. Yeah. Anxiety is being far from home. Anxiety is feeling distance and exile without feeling it fully enough to actually be on your way back home through feeling it. So again, it's a kind of uh, staticness. And uh, I have this piece called What to Remember When Waking. It looks at the way when you emerge from this, imaginative and physiological transfiguration called sleep you've actually got an opening into the world that closes very quickly actually but it's an opening that's free from worry if you've slept properly yeah so there's a discipline of entering into sleep you know through the breath and the body so that you're not falling asleep in anxiety yeah? the way we fall asleep is often the way we wake. Yeah. But sometimes you can have just a transformative sleep out of nowhere. Everyone has one night a year when they wake up (laughs) and they say, oh, my God, if I slept like that every night, I'd be 10 years younger. So this is the piece. It's about the discipline of waking, you know, to think that um, if you go straight to your to-do list, that to-do list was actually put together by the person you were yesterday before you had this transformative sleep. So those are your set of worries from yesterday, actually. So to wake into a kind of not to-do list to begin with, and then rewrite your to-do list out of that later on, completely transforms the day ahead. These are the opening lines of the poem, what to remember when waking. In that first hardly noticed moment in which you wake, coming back to this life from the other, more secret, movable, and frighteningly honest world where everything began, there's a small opening into the day that closes the moment you begin your plans. There's a small opening into the day that closes the moment you begin your plans. What you can plan is too small for you to live. What you can live wholeheartedly will make plans enough for the vitality hidden in your sleep. To become human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. To remember the other world in this world is to live in your true inheritance. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. So this starts to address that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that line, uh, "Troubled guest," I take it, it's stolen actually from a Goethe poem. The great German scientist and poet, all round a big hitter, uh, Wolfgang. Uh, <laughs> Goethe, he has this incredible poem called Die Seele The Holy Longing. The powerful line is, Und uh, solang du das nicht hast, dieses, sterb und werden, bist du nur ein trüber Gast auf der dunklen Erden. And so long as you have not experienced this, to die and so to grow, you are only a troubled guest on the dark earth. Mm. So there's bagast, there's Troubled Guest. It's a brilliant description of the human condition. Someone who doesn't know how to receive the hospitality of the world. And there's nothing worse than a troubled guest. Someone you invite to dinner or to the house, they don't know where to put themselves, they're too nervous, they don't think they deserve it, or they don't know how to hold the conversation. You know, We can often be like that in life. Yeah. And so there's a necessary shyness, in a proper guest, you know, when you first come to the door. You don't walk into someone's house, you know, and uh, kick your shoes off and open the refrigerator door and see if they've got a beer, you know, and take it out straight away. You should be shy. You should be looking to how you actually begin the conversation in a way that's appropriate to this place of hospitality that you've been invited into. The ability not to be a troubled guest on this earth, you know to go to an untroubled place inside yourself from which you can look at your troubles and your anxieties and your difficulties. There is a part of you that feels that the world is exactly right and exactly miraculous just as it is. And we're quite often operating from the part of us that feels there's always something wrong with the world unless we go and put it right. Yeah. So So our life is really a conversation between the two. But if you don't have that foundation inside yourself, you'll always be imprisoned by your anxieties and your worries.
3: Yeah, you talk about this anxiety when we sort of create this relationship with ourself. And you say there's a way of holding ourselves that is larger than any particular worry. I love that. And you also talk about a way of being that's so alive to the phenomenon of existence that it stops distinguishing so much between what is winning and what is losing. And that gets back to what we talked about earlier, the Zen and the direct perception. I'm with things as they are without all my concepts about the way they should be.
0: Yes, and I think this is really uh, necessary to um, deepening any relationship or conversation in a relationship because the way we've named someone else and the way we want them to behave all the time I mean, we get anxious about ourselves, but we get anxious about people who we live or love with, you know, and uh, they're not conforming to the way we think they should actually behave. So the relationship with silence, with this untroubled place, allows you to let the person have their own life more, you know, not holding them hostage to a paragon of perfection that you set for themselves, not holding yourself hostage. You know. There's a beautiful story in the Zen tradition uh, about a monk called Hogan. That's his Japanese name, actually. His Chinese name was Yathan. But Hogan was a theological monk who lived in one of the great cities in China. And he prided himself on being uh, the hippest theological kid in town, I suppose. (laughs) And uh, he decided that he and a coterie of monks would go out to all the rustic monasteries and take the latest Buddhist theology to them. But uh, in his journey, he... Pretty soon realized that when he was confronted with many of these abbots, you know, who had been living the practice for decades, you know, he actually didn't know very much. And eventually he came across an abbot called Jizo at a monastery. He had a couple of confrontations with him in which he didn't come off very well, conversational conversations, where again he realized he didn't know much. And then finally, very compassionately, Jizo asked Hogan by the way, where are you going on this circuit? You know, what are you doing? And Hogan said, I'm going on pilgrimage. And then Jesus said, what is a pilgrimage? He said, looking at him directly. And Hogan looked at him in despair and said, do you know, I don't know anymore what a pilgrimage is. And Jesus said, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. And really, when you think about it, you know, in the kitchen with your loved one, Not knowing is most intimate. You know, when you stop thinking you know who you're with, when you stop using those affectionate nicknames you have for them in order to imprison them in certain kinds of behaviors, or when you look at your wife, your husband, your partner, your child as if you've seen them for the first time, and that you actually have to get to know them. And you let go of the illusion that you know who you're with. I mean, your child doesn't even know who they are. So how could you know who they're growing into being? Actually, your husband, your wife, your partner doesn't know who they are. So how could you know who they're growing towards being? You know, there's a shyness at the beginning of a relationship where we don't quite know what to say, you know or how to say it, Uh, we don't know what to wear, you know, all of those things that are those beautiful shynesses on a first date where you're really, really fascinated by someone. But there's another shyness when you've been with someone for a long, long time, for many years, and that shyness can be even more difficult than the first shyness you felt when you met them. And the ability to break below that level of shyness I mean, when you think about it, it's a parable, it's a metaphor for your relationship with yourself. You've lived with this person in the mirror year after year after year. You've given yourself names. You think you know who you are, actually. You can be very shy about getting below the surface of who you actually might be now. So the ability to actually drop below that line of shyness with a long-term partner This is a measure of our ability to stay intimate with the other person. We all know the difficulties in in keeping intimacy alive, sexual intimacy in a long-term relationship, but also conversational intimacy, a sense of intimacy with a shared horizon. These are all difficulties in a long-term relationship. They all have to do with not knowing. Not knowing is great intimacy, of inquiring, asking beautiful questions of the other person. And of yourself. That's beautiful. And so true.
3: It makes me think about the cycles that you talk about, you say, the common to all three marriages, right? Which is this sort of recognition of what we want., yes. And then there's a pursuit. Yes. And then the hope to circumvent the difficult but necessary disappointments, yes. um, which is where I think a lot of us get stuck. And then ultimately in the face of that disappointment, the full recommitment to the vows we have made, yes. which is that full recommitment to continuing to get to know either that other person or our own work
0: or ourself. Yes. Yeah, I had a, I, I remember, I must go back and reread that book, actually. You're reminding me <laughs> of many, many phenomena and dynamics in it that I'd forgotten I'd addressed, you know, but I really loved actually following the lives of the people I chose out, Yeah, Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, Jane Austen, and following their lives through these different stages of the romance with what they wanted in their lives often something you don't know you want that you're actually unconsciously pursuing yeah so i must go back thank you for the reminder to reread the three marriages it's beautiful
3: and i see its echoes in all your work yeah particularly the constant sort of engagement with the self the perhaps uh hardest of the marriages uh in some way well i don't know if i <laughs> i've been in some pretty bad marriages so maybe i'll, yeah. I'll, I'll walk that statement back
0: <laughs> i'm just reminded of the image of uh that robert lewis stevenson creates in kidnapped where he's uh, marooned on the island it's the island of air Age, actually that he spent robert lewis stevenson spent his childhood on because his father was an architect for building the lighthouse and the lighthouse ha- houses that are still there to this day. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the story in Kidnap, but he's on the island and things just get worse and worse. And he has a purse full of money and he's, he's wandering around this island trying to find a way off it. You know, he loses his money. It all falls out of his purse. Yeah, So now he's broke on the island, you know, and he's trying to get the attention of the fishing people who are around, you know who just speak Gaelic, and they're waving to him and they're trying to communicate something, but he can't figure out what it is, but none of them are coming to get him. And then eventually, finally, when he wades into the water after a number of days there, he finds that actually at low tide, he can wade off the island onto the mainland. And that's what (laughs) the fishing people had been pointing and telling him he could do. It's a perfect parable, actually, of when Robert Louis Stevenson was pursuing his love this woman who had um, in many ways fled away from him because she was half in a relationship with her husband who she wanted to leave, but it was at a time where you were under tremendous shame if you did, you know, and she moved to Oakland and Robert Louis Stevenson was in San Francisco and there was no bridge at that time. So it was actually quite difficult to get across to Oakland from San Francisco. Hmm. He hardly had a penny in his pocket to pay for the ferry fare to go across so as this writing, Kidnapped, was the perfect parable of what he'd gone through when he was in love with this young woman who eventually became his wife, actually, and partner. And it was lovely to discover that image in Kidnapped. I'd never drawn the parallels to it before, but it was, that was one of the most pleasurable parts of the book. And of course, we're always discovering ourselves, these invisible and visible parallels inside ourselves between our behaviors out in the world that we think have often no real meaning to them that you find our perfect outer representations of the dilemmas and doorways that we have to find our way through on the inside so
3: shall we do one last poem from the new book yes so i've got a couple of suggestions and you tell me which you'd rather do or neither but i love perfectly made and the
0: edge you carry with you were two that came to mind for me yes let's do the edge you carry with you because i've been working with that quite a bit i do love perfectly made too I think we could spend the whole hour on Perfectly Made, and perhaps I think that's we, while I'm keeping away from it. <laughs> I, I think we could. <laughs> it was That was sort of my plan. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so um, The Edge You Carry With You. Again, this is one of those uh, titles where that's all you need, actually, is the first sentence, The Edge You Carry With You. We all intuitively know what that, that is. It's from our inheritance, you know, those edges that we haven't, fully resolved, you know, from the traumas of our childhood in or out of our family. Um, I mean, we're traumatized just by birth itself, independent of who we come in with. So this is looking at what we carry within us and the way it can actually become our gift, the edge you carry with you. What is this beguiling reluctance to be happy? What is this beguiling reluctance to be happy, this quickness in turning away the moment you might arrive, the felt sense that a moment's unguarded joy might, after all, just kill you. You know so very well the edge of darkness you have always carried with you. You know so very well your childhood legacy, that particular inherited sense of hurt given to you so freely by the world you entered. And you know too well by now the body's hesitation at the invitation to undo everything others seemed to want to make you learn but your edge of darkness has always made its own definition secretly as an edge of understanding and the door you closed might by its very nature be one just waiting to be lent against and opened and happiness might just be a single step away on the other side of that next unhelpful and undeserving thought. Your way home understood now, not as an achievement, but as a giving up, a blessed undoing, an arrival in the body, and a full rest in the give and take of the breath. This living, breathing body, always waiting to greet you at the door, always, no matter the long years you've been away, still wanting you to come home. That is so,
3: so beautiful. A blessed undoing. I feel like so much of my spiritual practice, that's what it has become.
0: Exactly. Yeah. We're just afraid in that undoing that we won't find anything underneath because we've lost our necessary friendship with silence. I often think, you know, there's a lot of angry men in North America at the moment. (laughs) It seems to be the fate of most American men to become angry in their middle and late life about one thing or another, or just walking down the road or driving a car. And I do think it's because there's no discipline of silence. And when you haven't been introduced to the joys and treasures of silence earlier in your life, you actually start to see it as the enemy, because actually it is the enemy to your established identity. It's going to undo and break down the perimeter and edge that you set up for yourself. In all of our great traditions, at midlife, you're supposed to actually turn towards silence. It's very powerful in the Hindu society. You became a forest dweller after you've raised your family. In medieval Europe, after you'd had your time as a knight or a man-at-arms, you would become a hermit in the woods. I mean, this is a classical kind of image of perfection. Not everyone got to do that or to even entertain it, but it was in the literature and it was seen as the ultimate pattern. So I often think, you know, the anger that we see in our society is... Most especially because there's no rest. There's no rest into the silence that will open the door to you to a greater understanding, to a greater sense of ease in the world. Yeah? So we hold ourselves to hostage, we hold, but rather than accuse ourselves, we accuse others, you know. We name people in ways, you know, right winger, left winger, liberal conservative and we're creating a civil war because of that very simple reluctance to make a friendship with the unknown and with the intimacy of the unknown and the beauties and nourishment of silence in a in an everyday life
3: well I think that is a beautiful place to wrap up with a invitation to what I think we could all agree we need more of which is silence. I know I do. I try and prioritize it, and I could always, uh, <laughs> could always have more of it. Yeah, David. I want to thank you for coming on. Your poetry induces a sort of inner silence in me, and for that I'm grateful. So, thank you, Eric. Yeah, I'm so glad that we've been able to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, lovely, and I look forward to the next one. Thank you very much.
1: Make a donation at any level and become a member of the One You Feed community. Go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh
3: my God, we've summoned something from this board. This
2: is... Is Uncanny USA.
3: He says, Somebody's in the house, and
1: I screamed.
2: Listen to Uncanny
3: USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
2: playlist there's new free shows and movies to love every week say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote
4: you know that feeling when you walk into your home take a deep breath (sighs) and feel new